Well, would you look at that? That's an attack on democracy with echoes, of course, of January 6th. Good morning, everyone. What you've been looking at are protesters in Brazil storming three seats of power, the presidential palace, Congress and the Supreme Court over election conspiracies. Familiar, right? Yeah. And there's questions about not just familiarity, but like the actual connection between the two. Yeah. 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 So what sparked these riots? We're going to tell you all about it. We'll get into it in a little bit here. Also, President Biden has just visited the southern border for the first time since taking office, but he did not meet or interact with any migrants while he was there on the ground. While the White House is explaining that, also this. Do you speak to William now? Do you text? Uh, currently, no. Yeah. A really revealing interview, Prince Harry opening up about his brother, his late mother, all of the royal leaks to the media, why he accuses the queen consort of being, in his words, quote, dangerous. As you can see, it's a very busy Monday morning here. We're going to begin with what's being called Brazil's January 6th, with rioters attacking that country's seat of government. This is what it looks like in Brasilia right now. That's where troops are lining up across from those protesters. Again, look at the pictures on your screen. The deadline to clear them now just four hours away after this happened yesterday. (laughs) Those rioters are supporters of former President Jair Bolsonaro stormed and vandalized Brazil's Congress. Supreme Court and Presidential Palace on Sunday, security forces used tear gas to clear protesters and regain control of the buildings. Officials declaring overnight the riots are over. At least 400 people are under arrest this morning. The unrest coming a week after the inauguration of President uh, Lula da Silva, who is vowing to punish those responsible for the attacks. Straight now to scene is Rafael Romo tracking the developments for us this morning. Rafael, good morning to you. What is the situation in Brazil's capital this morning? Good morning, Don. Well, it's finally under control, but it looks like a war zone. And allow me to paint the picture of what transpired in the last 24 hours. Imagine for a moment that the January 6th mob here in the United States had not only breached the Capitol, but also the White House and the Supreme Court building. That's exactly what happened in Brazil Sunday, an insurrection that ended with the arrest of at least 400 people, uh, left the main public buildings in the country inoperable and deepened a political crisis that has been brewing four months. Brazil boiling over. Supporters of former Brazilian President Jair Bolsonaro stormed key buildings in the country's capital Sunday, breaching security barriers and temporarily occupying the country's Congress, presidential palace and Supreme Court. Masses of protesters flooded the country's seat of power, many dressed in the colors of Brazil's flag yellow and green, fueled by anger and distrust over Bolsonaro's defeat in a runoff election last October, where he lost by less than two percentage points to current president Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva. Protesters threw objects and scaled the roofs of buildings while clashing with police who responded with tear gas. At least one protester was seen sitting at the desk of Brazil's Congress president. CNN Brazil reports the floor of the Congress building was flooded after the sprinkler system activated when protesters attempted to set fire to the carpet. By evening, police began dispersing the rioters from buildings and arrested hundreds of people who were detained in buses before being taken to the police station. President Lula da Silva, who was inaugurated just a week ago, described the events as barbaric and vowed to punish the people responsible. 
Those people that we call fascists, we call them everything that's abominable in politics. They invaded the government headquarters and they invaded the Congress like vandals, destroying everything in their path. President Lula da Silva also blamed his predecessor for the lack of security in the capital, where Bolsonaro's supporters have been camped out for over a week. Bolsonaro, who is currently in Florida, denounced what he called the depredations and invasions of public buildings in a tweet, adding that peaceful and lawful demonstrations are part of democracy. But critics say Bolsonaro may have stirred up the crowds by repeatedly saying, without evidence, that he questioned the integrity of the country's electronic voting system. More details have emerged overnight about how violent some of the pro-Bolsonaro protesters became. Done at least 12 journalists were attacked, robbed, or had their equipment destroyed. Now back to you. Ah, just an awful situation. Thank you, Rafael. Appreciate that, Caitlin. Now, also this morning, President Biden is in Mexico after he visited the southern border yesterday for the first time since taking office. During a tightly controlled visit to El Paso, Biden met with Border Patrol officers, lawmakers, and local officials. But he didn't appear to actually meet with any of the migrants or see any of them, including as he visited a migrant aid center while he was there on the ground. The White House says that's because there were no migrants there at the time. They said it was a coincidence. But CNN reporting does show there are still hundreds of migrants living on the streets of El Paso, including children, as we've been showing you in our reporting. CNN's Priscilla Alvarez is live in Mexico City. Priscilla, you know, the president's been facing backlash from both Democrats and Republicans when it comes to immigration. Obviously, it's not any any simple solution. Uh, what did he see while he was there actually on the ground? Well, and to that point, Caitlin, he has been facing growing calls to visit the U.S.-Mexico border as the administration deals with a record-breaking surge of migrants. And on Sunday, he was forced to uh, face that political problem that up until this point has no quick or easy solution. And that was clear from the outset. Texas Governor Greg Abbott, a fierce critic of the Biden administration, greeted Biden when he arrived and gave him a letter, that letter criticizing the administration's immigration approach. Now, over the course of the hours-long visit, the president went to a port of entry, he went to the border wall, and he went to that migrant processing center that you mentioned earlier, where he didn't appear to see migrants. Now, advocates say he essentially left the visit without seeing the worst of the humanitarian crisis, a crisis, Caitlin, that remains a challenge for the administration and one that Biden is very likely to talk about here in Mexico during the North American Leader Summit. Yeah. What else is on the agenda today? Because I know this is really going to be the first time we see these three leaders get in a room together by themselves to talk about these really critically important issues. What else is on the agenda, though? Well, today he's going to have a bilateral meeting with Mexican President Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador. And, Caitlin, it is clear that the administration needs Mexico when it comes to enforcing the U.S.-Mexico border as well. We saw this just last week with an announcement that they were going to uh, open up a parole program for Nicaraguans, Cubans, Haitians and Venezuelans and also expel those back into Mexico who didn't come through that program. So that requires buy-in from Mexico. These are the type of issues that are going to come up here uh, along with the Canadian Prime Minister. Caitlin? All right, Priscilla Alvarez, thanks so much for that update. And now this, also this morning. 
Miami and the Jets were underway as New England decided to defer after winning the toss. And here's Hines on the run back, breaking a tackle and taking it past midfield. And down the sideline he goes. This is storybook. An opening kickoff return for Tamar Hamlin. And this place is absolutely going wild. It was so great. Watch that on the plane last night. That was the moment the Buffalo Bills scored on the opening kickoff. They went on to win the game, an emotional victory against the New England Patriots. And Hamlin watched the action. Damar Hamlin from his hospital bed. He posted this picture here, rooting on his teammates. Players across the league showed their love, their support for Hamlin on the final Sunday of the NFL regular season. Our Coy Wire was there, of course, a former safety for the Buffalo Bills, you were there. I'm so glad they had that victory and what an emotional one to have, Coy. What was it like to be there? Yeah, as star quarterback Josh Allen said, it was spiritual. As head coach Sean McDermott said, it was a celebration of life. People around the world have come together, Poppy, to show support and spread love through tragedy after tragedy that have happened here in Buffalo, and the players feel it. Here's one of the stars of the team, Pro Bowl lineman Deion Dawkins, reflecting on the remarkable combination of moments for this team, this city, and number three, Damar Hamlin. Deion, this is where it all went down. Absolutely, man. What was that like? It's a, the crazy thing is I want to give you the perfect answer, like, but, but it is, it is so emotional. Like it is so emotional and it's so ecstatic because, um, usually they announce either the offense or the defense. And today we came out as a team and like when we're all in there and you can just feel everybody's intensity and you can just feel everybody's motive and direction. It was just amazing. It truly was. Again. Oh yeah. Uh, but then for the first time you're back on this field since the tragedy occurred yeah. and it's to the house, a kickoff return for a touchdown. Doesn't happen. It, it hadn't happened for the Bills three years and three months ago was the last time that happened. Three years and three months? Yes. That's, see, like, like that's that goosebump weird <laughs> stuff. You know what I'm saying? Like that's numbers and those numbers don't lie. And that just shows you that, that, that God is so real. He is so real, man. He's so real. And I'm just so, like, so blessed to be a part of it, you know, and uh, it happened twice. It happened it twice happened today. Twice. It happened twice today. So you really can't make this stuff up, man. No. You really can't. So Damar is live tweeting the game. Yeah. And after that happened, he tweeted, OMFG, <laughs> exclamation points. Uh, if you don't know what that means, uh, ask somebody, but not around children. Right. <laughs> or Google it. <laughs> uh, so w what was going through your mind when, when that happened? You know, seeing it happen and just looking at it, it just makes everybody just go into an uproar. And we're looking, and then we just see him going, 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 going. I jump up like a giant kid, run all the way down the sideline, and I'm just ecstatic. Star quarterback Josh Allen called it spiritual. It really was. Um, bone chilling, like, it was, it was special. The whole way, I think the nation came together and supported DeMar, and, um, you know, we've, we've had a lot of talks that maybe we wouldn't have had without something like this happening. Like DeMar tweeted earlier this week, he said, you know, you put real love out there, it comes back three times It's as the much. truth. It's incredible. This week has been um, an emotional roller coaster. How do you sum up where this week started? You're at a low. And I mean, you're at a, a real low. A low that you're just like, man, like, first of all, I'm scared to play football. We don't know what is like gonna happen. That, like, that was a routine thing that happened and we all do routine things every play. 
So it could have been any one of us. So I know for myself, I'm thinking about pulling and what if I accidentally get hit the wrong way. From bringing us there to the grind of the whole week and his father like speaking to us and that giving us just like a, but like a huge shot of energy. And then at McDermott bringing the, the FaceTime call on and then us actually hearing his, his, his voice and seeing his face and seeing him put his arms up and his heart up, you know, like, like those were all huge energy sources that just hit us, you know, like, but like almost like whatever, like a cannon, just boom, dropped right on us. And then now to this mo moment now of happy tears and these happy tears are real tears as well as the sad tears. And just to see that when a group comes together, we put our mind to it and we got it done. Our thanks to Dion Dawkins for that, Poppy. This story went from being about Hamlin to being about humanity. From the tears and fear to start the week to the tears of joy and outpouring of support we've witnessed. One heart may have stopped, but it made the whole world come together to beat as one. Aw, it really did. And when he said those happy tears, it says so much. Koi, how great to see you on that field again. It must have felt pretty good, right, to be back with some happy news to share. It did. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, this smile's not going anywhere. <laughs> I bet. Thank you, friend. All right, so the NFL playoffs matchups are now set. Super wild card weekend begins Saturday with two games in San Francisco and Jacksonville. Sunday's triple header includes Buffalo hosting Miami and, of course, Minnesota. Thank you very much yesterday. It was a great day for us, the Vikings. Then on Monday night, the Cowboys and the Bucks meet in Tampa. The Chiefs and the Eagles earn first-round buys as the top seed in each conference. And Aaron Rodgers, will he play again? Listen to what he told someone who asked for his jersey last night after the Packers were eliminated. Speculation is running wild that Rodgers may retire or possibly be traded next season. Guys? And this morning, Republican House Speaker Kevin McCarthy facing a whole new slate of challenges after his historic floor fight last week. He now must find a way to pass a package of House rules after making major concessions, weakening his own power. Seeing as Jessica Dean live at Capitol Hill with more. Jessica, this is becoming your uh, home away from home. <laughs> Good morning to you. What are we expecting today? Well, let's just set up a cut here, Don. Uh, we would get a lot more rest. Uh, we are expecting uh, more drama to play out, likely. So we have Kevin McCarthy now officially the House Speaker after going through all of those votes last week. And now you mentioned this rules package, and it sounds like we really are getting in the weeds here. We are a little bit, but they've got to pass that to really set uh, the stage for everything moving forward. It's what uh, every uh, new House does uh, in the majority, and this is that's typical. What is atypical about all of this is that there are some pretty major concessions and changes in this package. You mentioned uh, some of them, uh, but this is how McCarthy and his allies were kind of wheeling and dealing to get him the gavel. One of those, of course, uh, making it easier to oust him as Speaker of the House. Now only one person can call for that vote instead of half the conference. That's a pretty big change. There's also a lot of spending cuts, uh, different committees, that sort of thing. But the wrinkle is going to be that, remember, he has this very slim majority. He can only afford to lose four votes. And already on Friday, when we thought they might be going with this uh, after that vote, uh, we had already heard from Representative Tony Gonzalez that he wasn't going to support this rules package over concerns for uh, cuts in defense spending. So we're going to see more of this. This is going to become very regular that he's going to have these really close calls uh, because he's just got this very wide spectrum within his party. I just have one question for you, Jessica. Um, did you and Poppy call each other this morning? <laughs> I was going to say it. I saw Poppy pop up on the screen. 
It looks really good, Poppy. <laughs> looks better on you, girlfriend. <laughs> you look great. That Caitlin, is hilarious. I know. Hey. Caitlin says great minds dress alike. So. <laughs> well, we like. I like to think that as well. It looks great. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Have a great day. <laughs> Love that. Nice <laughs> outfit choice. Uh, we also have some new CNN reporting yeah. this morning on Biden's struggle to get federal judges confirmed in the South. We'll tell you what's behind it. How much of it is the actual Trump factor here? Also, this. None of anything that I've written and anything I've included is ever intended to hurt my family. But it does give a full picture of the situation. Yeah, what an interview. Prince Harry revealing more about the royal rift with his family ahead of the release of his memoir. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. In an explosive interview with Anderson Cooper on 60 Minutes, Prince Harry revealed details about his fractured relationship with his family, including just how deep that rift really goes. Do you speak to William now? Do you text? Uh, currently, no. But I look forward to, I look forward to us being able to find peace. How I long want... has it been since you spoke? Um, oh well. Do you speak to your dad? We, aren't, we haven't spoken for quite a while. Um, no, not recently. Can you see a day when you would return as a full-time member of the royal family? No, I can't see that happening. This interview was Harry's first with a U.S. outlet in advance of the publication of his new memoir, Spare, which is being released online tonight. Joining us now to talk about it and the takeaways are seen in newsroom anchors and correspondents, Max Foster and Bianca Nobolo. This is just remarkable in the sense of what the depth of what he's revealing here. I, I just can't get over all of the revelations about how intimate he's willing to go about truly his family details. The fact that he's not speaking with his brother or speaking with his father. It's quite remarkable for a number of reasons. First of all, to have anybody, whoever they are, share this level of personal divulgence about their own lives, drug taking, loss of virginity and their family's life, how they've responded to grief and key moments in their life is striking. But especially when it's the British, British monarchy who are known for never complain, never explain, never addressing these things, keeping a stiff upper lip. It just makes the whole thing a lot more mind-bending, wouldn't you say? Yeah, you're getting a sense of why he's doing it from these interviews as well. Uh, it's definitely damaging the monarchy. He believes in monarchy. He says he doesn't want to hurt the family. So he does explain himself a bit better in these interviews, but more revelations. Should we play what he said? Let's, we're going to play for our viewers who might have missed it, um, especially what he said about his late mother, Princess Diana. I was so struck watching Anderson's interview um, about how for how long he felt like he wasn't given the full truth. I think he still doesn't think he was. Mm. And that for years he thought perhaps his mother was still alive. But let's listen to this. You didn't believe she was dead. For a long, for a long time. I just refused to accept that she was, she was gone. Um, part of, you know, she would never do this to us, but also part of maybe this is all part of a plan. I mean, you, you really believe that maybe she had just decided to disappear for a time. For a time, and then that she would call us and we would go and join her. Yeah. How long did you believe that? Years. Many, many years. And William and I talked about it as well. He had, um, he had similar thoughts. You write in the book, you say, I'd often say it to myself first thing in the morning, maybe this is the day. 
Mm-hmm. Maybe this is the day that she's going to mm-hmm. reappear. Yeah, hope. I had huge amounts of hope. I wonder what you both thought when you heard that. Well, you know, I think that was you know a very compelling part of Anson's interview. He really got into Harry's head, and no one can argue with any of what he says around, you know, how he was affected by his mother's death. And he really explains it really well. I think it was, you know, you know, a historic interview in that context. Uh, I think a lot of the issues in this country is how he translates what he experienced there to the modern part of the story. Yeah, and it's hugely significant what he says about Princess Diana because she is the presence felt throughout this entire book. In terms of my personal reaction, I think anybody that's lost a parent can really understand Mm -hmm. that headspace Mm -hmm. and that kind of bargaining and denial that you go through. But also it helps us understand this fixation that he has with the British media and the British tabloid press because we know about the role that they played in Princess Diana's death in that tunnel in France. It is undeniable. And throughout these interviews, the refrain we hear from Prince Harry is constantly about the press being the antagonist, about being the problem, about that being part of the mission that he feels it's his responsibility to try and change. And the relationship he, um, you know, between the, as you said, the, the media and his mother's death, but the relationship between Megan uh, and the mm-hmm. media and people saying that, you know, believing that Megan was the reason that the, the rifts in the family uh, occurred. But he says not so yeah. in this interview. Let's listen to this. He was shouting at me. I was shouting back at him. It wasn't nice, it wasn't pleasant at all, and he snapped, and he pushed me to the floor. He knocked you over? He knocked me over, um, I landed on the dog bowl. You cut your back? Yeah, I cut my back, I didn't know about it at the time. But um, yeah, he, he apologized afterwards. It was a pretty nasty experience. None of anything that I've written, and anything I've included, is ever intended to hurt my family. But it does give a full picture of the situation as we were growing up. And also squashes this idea that somehow my wife was the one that destroyed the relationship between these two brothers. You know, it's, it's, it's odd to say this, but it's comparable to sort of Yoko Ono breaking up the mm-hmm. Beatles, right? He wants people to know that his, it wasn't his wife that started this rift between he and his brother. It happened long before Meghan Markle stepped in the picture. And, and this is just sort of what happened afterwards, right? It was on top of yeah, that. I did, yeah, and I didn't realise, he, he says basically that um, Kate and William didn't get on with Meghan from the get-go. And he says that they were stereotyping her as, you know, this American actress, biracial. And then, you know, he is asked by um, ITV about the racism as well, specifically saying, you accuse the family of being racist. And he's very clear... He said, we, we never accuse the family of being racist. I don't think they are racist. He talks about, um, you know, this is something different, you know, in relation to the colour of the, of the baby that was on the way. He said, we weren't accusing them of being racist. So he's trying to really explain where he's coming from. Mm-hmm. And um, I think it's confusing to a lot of people, but he says it's all about his truth. Thank you both very much. Everyone here is saying we can't wait to read the book. Uh, and, and hear him in his own words. We appreciate it. Max and Bianca, thank you. Uh, Head Anderson will join us. He's the one who did that sit-down interview with Prince Harry for 60 Minutes. He'll be with us a little bit later in the program. And a first date.
turn into a nightmare how one woman says she escaped after her online date attacked her and held her captive for days. Welcome back, everyone, to CNN This Morning. Straight ahead on the program, she was kidnapped, beaten, and starved by a man she says she met on a dating app, what led to the attack, and how she finally escaped. Plus, new CNN reporting, President Biden struggles to confirm judges in the South. What's behind the challenges? Our Joan Biskupic is standing by. And after nearly three years, China has reopened its borders, making an end, marking an end, I should say, to COVID restrictions. What's this now mean? What this now means for travelers? Yeah, and on that first story, Don mentioned there, this is a scary ordeal that happened in Texas. The perils of online dating. A man has now been charged with first degree aggravated kidnapping for allegedly holding a woman that he met on the dating app Bumble captive for five days and physically assaulting her before luckily she was able to escape. CNN's Ed Lavendera is live in Dallas. The details, Ed, this is just a terrifying story, but what are the actual details of what happened and what led up to this? Well, according to the arrest documents filed in the uh, case against 21-year-old Zachary Kent Mills, investigators say that the woman told them uh, that on uh, Christmas Eve, uh, she met uh, Mills on this dating app, uh, Bumble, and that he came by her apartment, picked her up, and went back to their apartment, that he instantly uh, started uh, trying to make moves for sexual intercourse, uh, but she denied those moves. And after that, Mills, according to the uh, court documents, became very very angry, and then spent several days physically assaulting her. Uh, She was found with uh, bruising on her eyes, all over her body. At one point, the court documents even say that he used a screwdriver uh, to to inflict punishment as well. And then five days later, on December 29th, Caitlin, uh, the court documents say that Mills decided to leave his apartment and go to his father's house, and that's when she was able to escape. That is incredible, and luckily she was able to. Ed Lavendera will stay in the story. Thank you. Still ahead here on CNN this morning. Yeah, this is about President Biden's struggle. You know, the White House talks so much and touts his legislative achievements, talks about how he's gotten all these judges confirmed, but he is struggling to confirm judges in the South and work against former President Trump's judicial impact that he had while he was in office. Plus, now that he finally has a speaker's gavel, how does Kevin McCarthy proceed in a Deeply, deeply divided caucus. All right, President Biden has set a record pace for nominating federal judges, but those efforts have stalled in the South. Federal judges are hugely important, obviously, but they can also be a huge part of a president's legacy, perhaps their most enduring legacy. So why is Biden running into roadblocks getting these federal judges confirmed in the South? Our Joan Biskupic has some fascinating new reporting on this. It is really interesting because the headline had sort of been, well, where the Obama administration had really fallen short on getting a bunch of federal judges confirmed, Biden has done a huge number, but not everywhere. That's right. In some ways, Poppy, the South has been left behind. You know, federal judges are appointed for life. Uh, But the Constitution says that while the president appoints, he has to seek the advice and consent of the Senate. And that's crucial. So there are two points here. You know, as you said, it's been significant that President Biden has outpaced Donald Trump, who put such a priority on changing the federal bench. 
But where uh, President Biden has not made headway is in the South, in states like Louisiana, Florida, uh, Texas, uh, places where, you know, voting rights and immigration cases are are crucial. And it's, you know, it's a place where enduring battles uh, over civil rights go on. But the problem has been that those are states that are also dominated by uh, Republicans, that they're states that have two Republican senators. And the general process has been that uh, the president needs uh, needs to consult, but also to essentially have uh, the approval of home state senators for his appointments. Mm-hmm. Right. Needs the advice and consent, right, of home state senators. So this is all about Biden getting those senators on board. Is your reporting that the White House thinks he can do that? Yes. Here's the thing, Poppy, that you should know also about the one of the reasons that Biden has surpassed former President Trump is because of the people running it. Uh, Chief of Staff Ron Klain has always has been very involved in judicial selection uh, for for decades before uh, joining the White House. President Biden himself was the Senate Judiciary Committee chairman. The uh, woman, Paige Herwig, who's overseeing this, has also been uh, deeply involved in uh, Senate negotiations over judges. So they are trying to uh, have a meeting of the minds to find some places of compromise. And in the end, Poppy, even though ideology drives a lot of this, there's also a really important home state imperative to actually fill vacancies because sure. of all the litigation in the state. So yep. I think that at this point in the middle of uh, Biden's uh, uh, four-year term, there's going to be a real imperative to try to start affecting the South. Now, your reporting will make a lot more people focus on it, that's for sure. Joan, thanks very, very much. It's fascinating. Thanks, Papi. After a historic five-day, 15-ballot floor fight, wow, Kevin McCarthy is now finally the Speaker of the House. The gentleman from the great state of California and the next Speaker of the 118th Congress, Kevin McCarthy. Okay, but it was loud and some yays. I don't know if there were boos, but it was loud. Uh, the question is, does this drawn-out fight foreshadow how difficult it could be for McCarthy to govern the divided party? So joining us now, editor-in-chief of Semaphore and former New York Times media columnist, Mr. Ben Smith. Good morning to you. Okay, so listen, it's barely, well, it hasn't even started yet, That was right? a very easy question. Like, yeah, <laughs> it's going to make it very hard. But this is my question, though. Is it, go, is it going to be, do you remember in the, the beginning days of the Trump administration where we would watch the White House briefing every single day because of the craziness that would come out of that? Is this going to happen with Congress now? You know, I think probably not. I mean, it was, as, you know, as Caitlin obviously found, it was impossible not to watch Congress over the weekend. But you can really go weeks and months without caring a lot about what the House of Representatives does. And I think this is an enormous headache for Kevin McCarthy. And, but but the, there's, the House isn't expected to do that much over the next couple of years. You know, it's a Republican-led House, Democratic-led Senate. There's not a huge legislative agenda. There's a couple things they have to do, notably pro- sometime next summer, raise the debt ceiling. And I think if you're looking for, you know, fistfights on the floor and tears and all that, you may have to wait a few months for that. I mean, I think that's the, that, that's, there's a couple things the House really has to do and really no clear way how they're going to do them. Yeah, but it is fascinating that today they're going to pass a rules package normally that would never, like, 
anyone would even blink at. It would just happen. There would be yeah. no questions about it. There are real questions about what will happen today. And, and I think you're right in the sense of, yes, it is still a Democratic-controlled Senate, and obviously President Biden is still in the White House. But these Republicans, maybe some of the more moderate members, those who won in districts that Biden may have won, they may be forced to vote on really unpopular things that typically they would try to protect their members and not have them vote on. Yeah, that's right. The conservatives want votes particularly on abortion restrictions and on defense spending right away, which are things that, you know, there's a couple dozen members in particular from swing districts who hate to do that. And I think, you know, there's there's two members who are suggesting they'll vote against the rules package. And on that, like everything else, McCarthy can only lose four. And so everything is pretty high wire. Yeah. The, uh, as Caitlin's saying, I don't think I've ever talked about a rules package like ever. Uh, and everyone is looking at it and looking at the concessions that McCarthy made, one of them putting more Freedom Caucus members on the Rules Committee. And it looks like then Republicans can only afford to lose two votes. And if you've got three, you know, Freedom Caucus members going against what McCarthy wants, teaming up with Democrats, it can just kill bill after bill after bill. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think his, it just, he handed off a lot of the power that you get when you're Speaker of the a House. A lot, like almost all of a it. A lot of it. I mean, the, I think the, you know, the, the good news is that none of those bills were going to pass, right? Like, I mean, they can pass the House. Right, but not the Senate. And, but, but it's, there is, there is, you know, sometimes you have a Congress where you have Democratic and Republican leaders from the different houses who have some big agenda, some big plan on immigration or security, whatever, that they're hoping to pass together. I and mean, there's nothing like that right now and nothing like that between these two parties right now. Is there, looking for, for the glass half full part of this, is there any good that can come out of ratings? Well, no, 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 no. Because <laughs> I was thinking as I was watching it, like, well, maybe this is good for some transparency. Maybe, you know, duking it out in front of the American people is good for, at least has some good in it, because you actually see what is going on. And that's what on. some of the Republicans Because it reminded yesterday. me of, you know, Parliament, right? Where you duke it out and you're like, yeah, that's, you know, great. And the people are engaged instead of like, you know, all this formality, like, yes, sir, okay, well, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it is a sort of a what good paradoxical come of this, thing ben? that, that effect, you know, <laughs> effective legislators are often run by leaders who are feared, who dominate the place, and, all, and none of the members have any power. That's what you see in a lot of state legislatures. It's to some degree what you saw in Nancy Pelosi's House of Representatives. Nobody was going to cross Nancy Pelosi. You know, AOC and the squad thought about doing something like this and just kind of couldn't pull it yeah. off. I think, you know, that, that's, that's where we are going to see a demonstration in, in kind of legislative democracy, yeah. I guess. But what I'll be watching is, you know, Chip Roy and them keep talking about what you're referencing there, the open amendment process where anyone can bring an amendment on the floor. They had that, I believe, back in 2011. And as Carl Hulse writes in The New York Times today, it was complete gridlock. And yeah. they quickly changed that process because nothing was getting done. And so they talk about this ideal. But I think a lot of these Republicans, they don't even know what life in the majority is like. They've never experienced that before. Yeah, and I think, and, and, and I think that also means being kind of blamed, held accountable. I mean, the nice thing, I mean, the limited nice thing about the minority is that all you get to do is cause trouble. Yeah. And you have a lot of folks who, I mean, I think the thing that they really got a lot out of this last few weeks was just attention. If you, you know, if you wanted attention, if you wanted your face on television, it was an incredible opportunity for these backbenchers. And if that is their impulse, as it seems to be, I mean, I think you, there's, a, there's an opportunity for a lot more gridlock, attention, C-SPAN ratings. Yeah. It is very John Boehner sort of, you know, it reminds me of that when you said you never, we never really talked about a rules package. When, when Obama was in yeah. office, it was, there was a lot of detail that we learned and sort of back and forth about rules. And what, but it was gridlock. It yeah, was, and, you, and you sort of, and I think the thing with gridlock is that nobody pays attention for a while, and then all of a sudden you turn around, the stock market is crashing. Ben Smith, 
Thank you. What good can come of this? What good can come of this? Appreciate your optimism. Thank you, Thank you. We appreciate you coming in this morning. Thank you so much. Well, Russia declared a ceasefire, but the fighting never stopped. How Ukrainians celebrated Orthodox Christmas over the weekend amid the missile attacks. That's ahead. I loved your first note in your free notes. Well, this morning, Russia's 36-hour ceasefire It is over, although it never really began. Ukraine dismissed the truce as a cynical ploy, and the shelling intensified as many civilians were forced to observe our Orthodox Christmas in cold basements separated from family. Let's go now to CNN's Ben Wiedemann, live for us in Primators, Ukraine, with more this morning. Ben, good morning to you. What is the latest? Well, Don, over the weekend, as you said, Ukrainians celebrated Orthodox Christmas. Now, we were in the embattled city of Bakhmut, and what we saw is that the few residents still left in that city tried but did not have a very Merry Christmas. There was no peace, no silence in Bakhmut on the eve of Orthodox Christmas. The unilateral Russian ceasefire never materialized. The guns didn't go silent. At one of the city's shelters, residents gather around a table laid with food and tokens of the holiday. Tatiana, a volunteer, tries to raise spirits. We wish you good health, peace, prosperity and all the best, she tells them. She knows it's important to put on a brave face. Even though it's raining and snowing outside, I'm smiling, says Tetiana. I wish people a Merry Christmas. I try to show them it comes from my soul. She did manage to bring a smile to the only child in the shelter, nine-year-old Volodymyr. And his wish on this day? I want this war to end and all my friends to return, he says. For the adults, the gift under this tree is electricity to charge mobile phones and a wireless router connected to a satellite link-up, allowing for a tenuous connection to loved ones. To reassure them, however they can, that they're still alive, if not well. And here there's warmth in a city where public utilities were knocked out months ago. Yet it's hard to feel the holiday spirit, says Andri. It's so sad, sad, sad day. As the day progresses, snow begins to fall and the shelling continues. Christmas Eve dinner is a subdued affair in this basement, home, for now, to a few of the doctors still left in Bakhmut. God bless us with strength, patience and endurance is Dr. Elena Molchanova's toast. But here, strength has its limits. I feel pain, she says, because I can't be with my family. I can't sit at the same table with my mother and daughter. Christmas morning and no let-up in the shelling. For months, Russian forces have tried to take this city, but so far have failed. But in the process, according to one local official, more than 60% of Bakhmut has been destroyed. At the Church of All Saints, priests hold mass in the relative safety of the crypt. Candles provide the only light and warmth in this, the darkest of times. 
And we're in front of a high school where it was hit just minutes into Monday morning at the supposed end of the Russian ceasefire. The Russians claim 600 Ukrainian soldiers were killed in this strike, but we've seen no evidence that there's any veracity to that Russian claim. Don? All right, Ben Wiedemann in Kramatorsk, Ukraine. Thank you very much. Still ahead this morning, thousands of nurses at two of New York City's biggest hospitals are on strike right now. We'll tell you what this means for infants in the ICU and ambulance calls. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Look at the similarities there, because on one side of the screen, the government under attack in the U.S., the other side, the government under attack Brazil. in Brazil, in yeah. Brazil. Good morning, everyone. It is striking, isn't it? It's crazy to yeah. see just how similar they are and also to look at the roots of it as well. And Yeah. And why? Yeah. It is echoes of January 6th as protests have stormed the Brazilian capital over election lies and conspiracies. We're going to take you there live straight ahead. Also, right now, two hospitals right here in New York City bracing for a strike after no agreement was reached between the hospitals and the nurses' unions. What those nurses are asking for and the impact on patients, even babies, will take you outside one of the hospitals. This is storybook! An opening kickoff return for Tamar Hamlin in this place. Is- that incredible moment last night. All this going on as Buffalo Bills safety Demar Hamlin is on the road to recovery this morning as his team clinched that victory in his honor. The heartfelt tributes are pouring in across the league. We'll share them with you. You could not have scripted that. That's awesome. Yeah. But first, we have to get to this democracy under attack. This time, though, it is Brazil. <laughs> So supporters of Brazil's former president, Jair Bolsonaro, storming the seat of government, vandalizing Congress, the Supreme Court and the presidential palace. The Capitol rioters insisting that Bolsonaro was ousted in a rigged election. Sound familiar? Security forces used tear gas to clear protesters and regain control of the buildings. This morning, at least 400 people are under arrest comes just a week after President Lula da Silva was inaugurated. He is vowing to punish those responsible for the attacks. Well, CNN's Brazil reporter is going to join us. There he is right there. Brazil reporter Pedro Nogueira live from uh, Brazil, Brasilia, outside a police station where some rioters were first taken. Pedro, uh, good morning to you. We appreciate you joining us. Please tell us what you know at this hour. Hello, good morning, everyone. Good morning to you. We're now in front of the police complex where most of the rioters were brought yesterday. And from here, they will be taken to a larger penitentiary complex outside the city, a complex called Papuda. So as you've described before, hundreds of those people were arrested yesterday after storming the three main Congress uh, government buildings in Brazil. So those are the Congressional Palace, the presidential palace and the Supreme Court, the destruction was huge. So we have rioters leaving behind a trail of destruction, including glass windows broken, 
works of art damaged and stolen, even uh, uh, works of art and looted weapons from the presidential palace. Inside the Brazilian Congress building, the floor was flooded due to the sprinkler system being activated after uh, an attempt to put fire to the carpet. At the Supreme Court, the chairs of the ministers were cracked out and uh, broke off the, the building. So that was the situation at the Supreme Court. At least 10 journalists were beaten or mugged during these uh, demonstrations. Supreme Court also ordered the governor of Brasilia to be temporarily removed from office. They understand they uh, he did not enough to stop this situation. Local authorities knew a lot of this uh, information before, so they knew a lot of protesters were coming to Brasilia in a hundred buses driving during the weekend to the country and the police did not enough to stop this situation. President Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva will spend the day uh, having meetings with Supreme Court justices and state governors to solve the situation. Back to you, Don. Pedro, we appreciate your reporting. Thank you so much. The similarities that Don was just talking about there to January 6th don't just stop with the images of what you're seeing today. Also, Steve Bannon is one of Trump's allies. Obviously, he's a chief strategist who worked in the White House. He has publicly acknowledged that he advised Bolsonaro. This is Bannon back in November as he was pushing the mis misinformation surrounding this election. Look in the streets of Brazil. Look at the great patriots in Brazil that had a lot of danger to themselves have come forward in the streets of Brazil. This is the people saying, no, you didn't follow the Constitution. You use these machines, you use the judiciary to shut us down in the media, and we're not going to tolerate it. It's going to be very interesting to see how that plays out. And we're seeing how it's playing out now. John Avalon is here to discuss. It is remarkable to see. It wasn't just Steve Bannon, who's been advising him. It was also Jason Miller was part of those mm -hmm. conversations. He had made several trips. Bolsonaro is actually in Florida right now, we yeah. should note. Uh, what has stood out to you about the takeaways and the similarities between what happened then, what happened after the election, and now what we're seeing play well, out? Of course, the echoes are unmistakable. Uh, I mean, you've got a... It's not even really echoes, right? It's the, it's I mean, look, you know, Mark yeah. Twain said history doesn't repeat, but sometimes it rhymes. Yeah. But this is a very close rhyme because yeah. the people fanning the flames on social media here in the U.S. are some of the sort of the Trumpist wing of, of, of that crew who'd been flanning the flames around the Stop the Steal movement very explicitly, not just Steve Bannon, as you say. Um, there has been a move to deny the legitimacy of this election. Um, from some of Trump's former advisors saying, do not concede. Uh, and here you have this slightly delayed reaction, but a direct attack on the Capitol by a mob. Uh, and, and it just, I think, speaks to the, the fact that democracy being under assault is not over. Uh, and some of the people using social media to encourage these sorts of, of, of mob attacks um, are, are, are some of the people who, from the sort of self-styled populist nationalist movement that they seek to make international. There was a, a great piece republished this morning in the New York Times from months ago that just walked through the months and years of lies about election fraud yes. that Bolsonaro um, made and continues to make that, that led to this, right, that lead to this. And it, the parallels are just so striking with the months and years of lies that continue on now. So I think the question beyond what we saw happen in Brazil is th those lies from those leaders continue. That's exactly. So then what? 
Well, look, I think it highlights the fact that there is a struggle between disinformation and democracy and that disinformation can create real world impacts. I mean, the the role of bots, for example, in Brazil, spreading disinformation, amplifying false messages, but also being done here from the United States by some of the former President Trump's closest advisors. You know, that, that I think just speaks to the fact that the disinformation flow around the world because of social media is international. But do you know what this, do you remember, right? Because we live this. Yes. We all love this. And people would say, why do you guys keep covering January 6th? Why are you trying to divide the country? What are you trying to divide? It's like, no, there was an attack on our democracy. This is important. This should be the lead story every single night on every news broadcast until people realize. And then you had all these voices on the conservative side or non lack of voices not calling this out or criticizing the news media for reporting on this. This is what happens when you allow authoritarian type behavior from leaders. This is what happens when yeah. you allow misinformation to, when you give Proliferate. it a platform. No, uh, look, I, I think that is exactly right because this is a real world impact two years delayed right. in another country. And it just shows that this is not academic. Until there's accountability, until we really get better at combating disinformation in a way that's consistent with our liberal values as, as, a, as a democracy, not only here at home, but abroad, I think these sorts of things will continue occurring. And the fact that it's some of the same players spreading the same degrees of election lies and misinformation, having this real-world effect in, our, in the, you know, the Southern Hemisphere, I, I think should be a wake-up call to us all as Brazil today uh, seeks to reestablish the rule of, of democracy. Yeah, we'll see what Republicans say about this. Democrats want them to weigh in and condemn what's happening yeah. in Brazil. That, One thing I will note, also, yeah. uh, at 345 today, the U.S. ambassador to Brazil is getting sworn in, so she has, obviously, a, a full plate. John Avalon, thank you for... Laying out what's really important here, and it does—it has global impacts, as you were saying. Thank John. you, and you it, This has been top of mind for you for years. So, for the last two years, thank yeah. you, John. I appreciate it. Uh, well, this morning, the president, President Biden, is waking up in Mexico, uh, facing some criticism, including from members of his own party. After his first visit to the border since taking office, it was a pretty tightly controlled visit to El Paso, Texas. It did include meetings with border patrol officers, uh, lawmakers, and local officials. But President Biden did not appear to meet or actually see any migrants there, including as he visited a migrant aid center. So everyone asked the White House why that was. The White House says, well, there were no migrants here at the time. It was a coincidence, they say. Our reporting does show, though, that there are still and were when the president visited uh, hundreds of migrants on the streets of El Paso, including children. Uh, Rosa Flores joins us live this morning from El Paso. And that's your reporting, Rosa. Um, that those migrants were there. The president didn't interact with any of them? No, he did not. And that's why the president is being criticized by both sides because of what he didn't see. So let me show you, because this is one of the migrant camps that's here in downtown El Paso. And, you know, the immigration advocates here in El Paso and Governor Greg Abbott usually don't agree on much, but they do raise the same question. If President Biden came here to El Paso to see the reality on the ground about the border and he didn't come here, what's considered the epicenter of this crisis, did he leave? with a clear understanding. What do you want to be? Oh, she wants to be a teacher. The Tovar sisters have been living in this makeshift migrant camp outside an El Paso church for a week. Oh, she wants to be Rapunzel. Playing with toys is a luxury they haven't enjoyed since they left Venezuela four months ago, according to their dad. No hay educación para niña, nada. 
He says that he decided to come to the United States because of the economic situation in Venezuela, because there's no education really for his daughters. The Tobars are among the hundreds of migrants who call the streets of El Paso home, arguably the epicenter of the current border crisis. A scene President Joe Biden skipped during his first visit to the border. A short three-hour stop in El Paso that prompted criticism by the governor of Texas. This is nothing but for show. And protest by local immigration and human rights advocates. You are not alone. Like Fernando Garcia. You think this is a photo op for the president? I think this is it. I mean, three hours. Plus, what is what you can do with them? Like that? feeling of disappointment is being transformed into outrage. Outrage over policies like the Trump-era pandemic public health rule known as Title 42, says Garcia. That rule allows border agents to swiftly expel some migrants to Mexico. Biden said this about the policy. I don't like Title 42. Just days ago, he expanded the rule to Venezuelans, Cubans, Nicaraguans, and Haitians. So I think the only ones happy with the expansion of Title 42 are the Trumpists conservative Republicans, the people that supported Biden. I mean, we were expecting something different from him. Something more humane, like the campaign promises he made, says Garcia. During his visit, Biden stopped by a port of entry, a migrant respite center, and by the border wall, but didn't appear to see or meet any migrants, which Garcia says means the president was not exposed to the full magnitude of the immigration crisis. Three hours. Is that enough? No, uh, obviously it's not enough. The timing of the president's visit is also raising eyebrows because the situation here has significantly improved. Take a look. This is what it looked like in mid-December when hundreds of migrants were lining up in freezing temperatures, waiting to turn themselves into immigration authorities. At the time, Border Patrol said that they were encountering about 2,500 migrants per day. Now. Take a look. The lines are gone, and the symbol of deterrence here is the Texas National Guard and the fencing they put up. According to DHS, the number of migrant encounters has also decreased to about 700 per day. Seven. Seven. The Tobar sister's favorite toy, a tablet, to learn numbers and the English alphabet. G. G. Their dream, learning to speak English. What would you tell the president? He says that his message to the president is that not all migrants are bad, that most of the migrants are like him. He's a father, he's here with his children, and they're just here for a better life. Now, the Tobar sisters are sleeping inside the shelter here at the church. Uh, they're allowed to. Some of the families are. Now, back to President Biden. My colleague, MJ Lee, asked the White House about the president not interacting or meeting with any migrants. And a senior administration official told her that it was because there were no migrants at the respite center at the time that the president visited and that it was coincidental. But, Poppy, I checked the migrant dashboard that the city of El Paso has. Uh -huh. And at the time when the president was here, there were nearly one. 1,000 migrants who were in federal detention. So if the president really wanted to see conditions, uh -huh. I kind of doubt that the president of the yep. United States would have been denied access. Poppy? Right, right. And just it's remarkable what we're seeing behind you, Rosa. Those are migrants sleeping on the street of El Paso, right? You're absolutely right. And we've seen this for weeks. And if the president would have stopped by here, he would have seen right. that there are hundreds of people. And you see them here behind me. 
hundreds of people living in the streets of America, I should highlight. This is a city in America, in the United States. Yep. And the top executive of this country came here. He did not came to see this. Rosa Flores, we're glad you're there and continue to be there to show it to us. Thank you for the reporting. We'll be joined next hour by the mayor of El Paso. Don. And what a difference a week makes. I want to turn now to that remarkable recovery of Bill's safety, Damar Hamlin. Players and teams around the league honored him before Sunday's games, wearing T-shirts that read, love for DeMar with his number three front and center. So before the Denver Broncos and Los Angeles Chargers kicked off, Russell Wilson and Duran James, who share Hamlin's number, met at midfield as both teams locked arms for a moment of silence and a show of solidarity. Jets rookie uh, Sauce Gardner uh, wore Hamlin's jersey during pregame warm-ups alongside Hamlin's college roommate at the University of Pittsburgh, Jordan Whitehead. And Hamlin's high school team, Rodney Thomas, honored the Bills' safety after his interception. Well, the Bills quarterback, Josh Allen, wore this custom sweatshirt, quoting Hamlin, reading this. It says, if you get a chance to show some love today, do it. It won't cost you nothing. Then said this to his teammates. Watch. So the Bills took to the field carrying flags with number three as thousands cheered on in support. And if that all wasn't amazing enough for you, the Bills scored on the very first play. I want to see that. Of that game, returning the game's kickoff 96 yards for the touchdown as their teammate cheered from his hospital bed. Caitlin? Such a cool moment to see. And a source tells CNN Hamlin is making progress. He is expected to be released from the Cincinnati hospital that he has been in in the coming days. His teammates say that they will feel even more relieved once he's actually home. It was extremely hard. I don't want to sh- like sugarcoat it. Like It was extremely hard, and it still is because our brother is still not physically here, Mm -hmm. but the fact that he's in high spirits makes him here. But until he physically touches his toes down, (laughs) then it'll be a full, (sighs) you know, but it's just, it's a a crazy balance. The Cincinnati Bengals honored the medical team who treated Hamlin on the field ahead of their game on Sunday. Joining us now to talk about this is Dr. Jonathan Reiner, a CNN medical analyst who specializes in cardiology and heart attack treatment at George Washington University. So you are obviously the perfect person to offer perspective on this. I wonder, doctor, this morning, how do you read this update that we're getting on Damar Hamlin? Well, he's had the best possible outcome. And I love what the Bills did yesterday in honoring the on-field staff because the most important uh, factor in DeMar's survival was the pre-hospital care he got. I have enormous admiration for my colleagues at the University of Cincinnati, but none of the care that they provided for DeMar would have been possible without the fantastic resuscitative effort mm-hmm. of the on-field staff in Cincinnati. So uh, kudos to them. What about, the, I was struck by your note that the survival rate for Commodio Cordis, which we don't know the full diagnosis. Maybe maybe we'll know more soon, but you've said it's the most likely diagnosis. That survival rate is about 50%. Not only did he survive, he's up, he's live tweeting the game. What does that tell you about potentially full recovery, maybe playing again in the NFL? Well, that's up to him. And, yep. you know, I think the, the job of... But the ability of... to, I mean, doctor. Oh, yeah, sure, of course. 
I, I think he should fully recover. Uh, the most uh, critical organ to recover, obviously, is the brain. The brain is the least forgiving organ for uh, moments of lack of oxygen. And when you see somebody who ha is completely neurologically intact following an out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, you know that the rest of their organs uh, and you know, the rest of their physical being will fully recover. Now, he was on a ventilator for two days. Uh, uh, he's you know, been in an ICU for almost a week. And even though he's uh, an incredibly well-trained 24-year-old athlete, that takes a toll. So I think uh, he'll need some physical therapy. He's going to need some time to recover, not just physically, but also emotionally. Mm -hmm. But I would expect from everything we know that he should fully recover. Wow. Would you advise him to go back? Obviously, it's his decision. What would you advise your patient to do? So that depends on whether he has any underlying structural heart disease. If this indeed was commotio cordis, and I've looked at the tape over and over and over again, and it really does appear that he arrested seconds after taking that a blow to the chest. If this is what this was, this incredibly unusual but well-described phenomenon, which can happen in people with normal hearts, then he'll have that decision to make. If you look at the American Heart Association recommend, recommendations for athletes who survive an episode of commotio accordus, uh, the recommendations do uh, suggest that athletes can go back to competitive sports. But again, this is, he'll have to, you know, you know, dig down deep and think about what he wants to do going forward. We heard that uh, two nights after his arrest, when he started to wake up, when he asked a question, he asked who won. Now we know who won. DeMar Hamlin won. Mm. Yeah, he did. It's a good question, though, and it is a big one to wrestle with uh, on what he'll do next. Yeah. Yeah. Dr. Reiner, we're just glad to hear these updates. Thank you for, for breaking it all down for us of what it actually means. Yeah. And, and My pleasure. Not so sure what he will do next. Look at the impact that he's been having I over know. just the last couple of this is the last week. His fundraising a charity. You that thought, I was not that thoughtful at 24. Like, look at all he's done. He's raised what eight million dollars now yeah. for these kids. Probably I can't even remember 24. <laughs> <laughs> I, I barely can't can. Remember the reverse 42. I barely can. All right, Dr. Reiner, thank you. Yeah. Coming up, Prince Harry detailing more on the royal family feud and defending his wife in a new interview. Also, what he long believed about the death of his mother, Princess Diana, plus this. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. In his first interview for American audiences, President Prince Harry, as I should say, opens up to Anderson Cooper about his memoir, Spare, a nod to his position of succession after his brother, the true heir. The prince revealed deeply personal details from the trauma of losing his mother, Princess Diana, to turning to hard drugs and alcohol for relief to where he stands with his royal family now. William tried to talk to you occasionally about your mom. Hmm. But as a child, you could not, you couldn't respond. For me, it was never a case of, I don't want to talk about it with you. I just don't know how to talk don't about talk it. About I never, ever thought that maybe talking about it with my brother or with anybody else at that point would be therapeutic. You didn't believe she was dead? For, yeah. a, long, for a long time. I just refused to accept that she was, she was gone. Um, part of, you know, she would never do this to us, but also part of... Maybe this is all part of a plan. I mean, you, you really believe that maybe she had just decided to disappear for a time? For a time, and then that she would call us and we would go and join her. I had a lot of anger inside of me that, luckily, I never 
express to anybody, but I resorted to drinking heavily because I wanted to numb the feeling or I wanted to distract myself from how, whatever I was thinking. And I would you know, resort to drugs as well. The British press and numerous other people was like, he's changed. She must be a witch. <laughs> he's changed. Um, as opposed to, yeah, I did change. And I'm really glad I changed because rather than getting drunk, falling out of clubs, taking drugs, I'd now found the love of my life and I now have the opportunity to start a family with her. Do you speak to William now? Do you text? Uh, currently, no. But I look forward to, I look forward to us being able to find peace. How I long want... has it been since you spoke? Um, oh well. Do you speak to your dad? We, aren't, we haven't spoken for quite a while. Um, no, not recently. Can you see a day when you would return as a full-time member of the royal family? No, I can't see that happening. And that, I think, is a really, really important thing. I don't ever see that happening. Let's discuss. Trisha Goddard is here, CNN contributor and host of This Week with Trisha Goddard. Zane Asher as well, the host of One World with Zane Asher on CNN International. Good morning. Good morning. I think that's really that's sad. the crux of it. I don't ever see being a member of the royal family, which means can that rift after all of this? I don't think he saw himself as a member of the royal family for quite some time when he talks about going to Afghanistan and separating himself. And I think um, one thing that this shows is it wasn't all about Meghan. There was this competition, there was this tension going all the way back. And it's not unusual to see in a family when you've got very early trauma, losing your mother so suddenly at the peak of her life. Um, Are you shocked by the revelations? Not really. Shocked, but not surprised. I mean, if he wasn't a royal, it would be the kind of average life of somebody going through trauma. Um, but I don't think... I always saw all of this other stuff as a distraction. This is about Prince Harry's scream into the night about um, certain sections of the tabloid media and the relationship they have with the royals. That, to me, is the underlying yeah, major thing. just take stock of the fact that what we have watched unfold over the past week, not just with the interview last night, but just this past week with all the revelations from the book, is essentially the disintegration of a family. I mean, this yeah. family is in tatters. And what Harry is trying to explain to us is that the tabloids mm. have fed off of this family for decades upon decades. And what he's trying to say is that, listen, there is virtually nothing left. Yeah, the part yeah. that made me sick to my stomach is when he talked about the fact that that night when Princess Diana died in that tunnel in Paris, that there were paparazzi there, which we knew, of course, but after her car crashed in that tunnel and she lay fighting for her life, mm. instead of going over to help her, yeah, yeah. they instead took photographs, which is inhumane if not criminal. And I also that the last thing that she would have seen is the flash of a flashbulb. That, to me, was visceral. Oh and, and then God. on top of that, you know, there is no trust in this family. I mean, can you imagine not trusting a single member of your own family to the point where there's no such thing as a private conversation? Mm -hmm. Any conversation you have with your brother or your stepmom or your dad, you're, in the back of your mind, you're thinking, hmm, could this be on the front pages 
of the tabloids tomorrow. Do you know what it's very much like? I, I talked to uh, a woman who does uh, trauma counselling with companies and she said this is a business when he talks about the firm. It's like when you've got somebody who's going to inherit the family business and all of, all of the money um, and the, the games they play. It's more like succession, if you like, than an <laughs> average family because it's not just the family. It's, it's a business. It's a firm. There's an image to be held. Um, and I think, you know, when you've got a part of the, the tabloid media that's become a gossip rag, basically, it's almost like, I don't know, I was saying, to, like Tony Soprano, hey, if you play the game, we'll be nice to you. If you don't, we're going to take you down. You know, it is... It <laughs> that's is, your Tony Soprano. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, I'll take them one. <laughs> I thought it was quite I, good. Yeah, yeah, I did. But, you know, it's that whole thing, if you're nice to us, we'll be nice to you. If you don't give us everything, then we will take you down. If your women come and, and don't play the game, we're going to talk about their clothing, how they don't fit in, how they're, as one journalist called it, uppity and what have you. But if they're nice, we're going to say, hey, look what a nice little mole she's turned into. They're acting like the mob. I'm not anti-tabloid. I am pro-robust journalism. And a lot of what these newspapers are doing has nothing to do with journalism. In addition mm. to that, though, you know, I was struck by the... the where he weighed in on his relationship with his brother. I think so many people in life, you know, rely on their siblings. Yeah. And they had this shared experience together. But he was talking about how the problems with his brother mm. would date back to when they were in school. And he was excited to finally be in school with him. But William was like, we don't know each other. Yeah, I mean, I think what we're learning is that there's a lot more, perhaps, mm. to Prince William than meets the eye. You know, Agreed. Prince William has certainly been portrayed one way over the past sort of 20 years. You know, the golden boy. I remember when everybody talked about this idea of, you know, maybe the monarchy could skip Charles and go straight to Prince William. Yes. He was beloved. And now we're sort of learning that, you know, William is perhaps a bit more of a complex character. I found it interesting when he talked about Meghan. Um, and, and what made me really sad is, I mean, Meghan Markle just, she never stood a chance. In no. this family. She just did not stand a chance. You know, I think that, you know, for generations, people within the British royal family have chosen to marry people who were who were right for the job, people who were mm. members of the nobility, the upper class. And she along was an comes American Harry. Actress. Yeah, and along comes snobbery Harry. snobbery in the UK, isn't there? We should say. No, there yeah. is. We should say, Zane. It's America. When I told friends I'd married an, an American, <laughs> it was like, <laughs> yeah, no, there is snobbery. There's this is, this is I'm sorry, a conversation yeah. that Trisha and I have been having since we, the wedding. Since the, the wedding. I, listen, I know we have to go, but can I just say, because you talked about the, the British tabloids, right? I could say 400 positive things about Meghan and Harry. Out of this interview, the Out bad one. Out of this one, interview, yeah. right, the bad one gets picked up. Like, I will say, um, of course, it's their story to tell, but I, let me just say this. Or I think what Megan does in her podcast, she brings to light this. It's very important, but I'm surprised at this. They pick up the surprise part, but not the good Don part. Don Lemon, outraged. It's outraged. Okay. It's like, yes. No, I actually, in person, I actually quite like them. Yeah. I actually think that they're very dynamic. I actually think that they're more interesting than Kate and William. Maybe that's no, part no, that's of the, the problem. But that's going to be the headline. They are more Don, interesting. And do I want, you know who I want to watch more than Kate and William? I want to watch Meghan and Harry because they are actually real people. Flawed. Putting yeah. it all out there, which is you and if you're a member of the media, of course you can critique and criticize. That's what we do. But, yeah. you know. But it's because on some, level, on some level, the British through. tabloids believe that we as a society enjoy consuming negative news about Meghan and Harry more no. than we enjoy consuming negative news about Kate and, and William. That's, you know, and so they Click think bait. that they're giving us what, what we want. I say, look, it's their story to tell. More power to them. 
There are certain things that I wouldn't share, but that's me. Don Lemon would not share this. <laughs> you know it's coming. Thank you. More to talk. We're going to talk more. We'll talk more. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Good to see both of you, Trisha and Zane. Uh, coming up, our Anderson Cooper is going to join us for a talk about a sit-down interview with Prince Harry. So make sure you stay with us. And be sure to tune in tonight for Anderson's full interview. The full interview, the Harry interview, begins tonight at 8 p.m. Eastern, AC 360, right here on CNN. All right. It is... I can't believe I'm telling you this, but this actually happened. A six-year-old boy in custody for shooting his first grade teacher after an altercation at school. Next, we will speak to the parent of a child who was in the building at that school when this all happened. Well, Richneck Elementary School will remain closed today and tomorrow after a six-year-old boy shot and injured a teacher at the school. This is in Newport News, Virginia. Police say there had been an altercation between the first grader and the teacher before the student shot a single round at their teacher on Friday. No one else was injured. Police took that boy into custody. The police chief says, quote, this was not an accidental shooting. According to officials, the teacher who was wounded is in stable condition, her alma mater, James Madison University, identifying her as Abby Zwenner. Newport News Mayor Philip Jones said this about all of it last night. There's a lot of questions that we have to answer as a community. Um, one, how six-year-old was able to, to have a gun, to know how to use it in such a deliberate manner. Um, but I do know that right now, because it remains an investigation, we're going to let it itself uh, sort of work out before we uh, rush to judgment at this time. But I can tell you that the individuals responsible will be held accountable. I can promise that. Well, I'm joined now by Mark Anthony Garcia. His eight-year-old son was right there. Mark Jr. Uh, attends Richneck Elementary School and was there when all of this happened. Thank you both for being with me, uh, and good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. So, Dad, you know, I, I didn't know Mark Jr. was going to be here. I'm, I'm glad he is. Um, no child, no one should have to face this, and no child should have to. What did you think as a dad when you found out what had happened in, your, in, in Mark's school? Well, first, before I start off, I just want to say prayers and healing to uh, Miss Abby and the child, uh, Richneck Elementary School, the city in our community. Um, the second thing is I wasn't alerted about what happened at the school. Half of the parents was not alerted about what happened in the school. We found out on the news. My wife called me and told me that there's a shooting active shooter at the school. And when we found out there was an active shooter, I got up, there was police helicopters everywhere outside, traffic was jammed up. So the mission to get to somewhat was impossible until we got there. And then it was a two mile radius cordon off of parked cars and people running, trying to actually get to the scene. Once we got to the scene at Hope Church, that's where the cops met us and they were trying to defuse the situation. Because that's when we, in the audience, uh, the crowd, and the cops were telling us that there was a, a shooter that was a child and a teacher that was shot. That's how we found out. I can't, no, one, no one called you. The school didn't send a text message. You found out on the news? Correct. Correct. 
And the worst part about this is that the school usually sends out a text message as well as the city. Mm-hmm. I have three text messages from the cities. Uh, they have a code, uh, a code for every city that sends out the messages. There was one that was sent out. It was sent out on. Go ahead. I'm listening. On the first, the seventh, and the eighth. Yeah. The incident. On the- I just think at the heart of this, and I'm sorry, I don't, I don't mean to interrupt you. The heart of this is that a six-year-old child had a gun in your eight-year-old child's school and shot a teacher. How does this happen? It happens because this is how I feel. And as a prior military veteran, I kind of understand this because I had to do this with my soldiers. It's called grouping. And when we miss the group and we miss the target, we miss what we're supposed to do. Number one, the call to the parents, we missed that grouping. So half of these parents are confused, and when we get there, we're already riled up because we don't understand. Number two, the security measures. They said that they had metal. De- they had. They don't have metal detectors in the front of the school. I walk my son to school and pick him up every single day. There's only one person outside, but they also have a road guard and stuff like that to get the kids into school. There are no metal detectors into that school. There's only one metal detector, and that's inside of the library. Um, we don't have a, a precise um, um, guideline of clear backpacks that could possibly have helped this, as well as security would want to get each child through properly. On a on in an article yesterday, it was released, and they said that um, they have a security measures inside of the facility, and kids are 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 are, are looked at every day in their backpack um, sporadically. My child's backpack is looked at every single morning by his teacher in his folder, Miss MacArthur, in the second grade. Every single morning. How did we miss this? And again, prior raised concerns. We, as parents, raised these concerns before. We've talked to the principal. We talked to the guidance counselor. We went to town hall meetings. We spoke on Zooms. What else are we supposed to do? Look, I I mean, I understand. I cannot imagine. I have a six-year-old. And a four-year-old. And I cannot imagine what you're going through, what all the parents are going through. I I do want to say we got a statement from the school, Mark, and they said there are many concerns we need to unpack before we can determine if any additional preventative measures would have impacted the probability of this incident occurring. It sounds like you think there's a lot they could could change. But is it all right if I ask your son, Mark Jr., a question? Yes. Can you give me one second before we even say that? I'm not blaming the school. I'm blaming the city for not implementing the measures to help these schools after three years of school shootings. OK, we'll, we'll reach out to the city as well. But Mark Jr., how are you doing this morning? I'm doing good. What was it like for you when this happened? Um. So... When when it happened, the teacher heard it from from the first grade, and we all went to the and we all went to the room. And then when we got there, we all stayed quiet. Two people were crying. I will I will help them. Mm-hmm. And when the cops came, we were marching to the gym. And we were all safe, and they were programming. It was safe in the house. How can they make it so you feel safer? Because I know school's canceled today and tomorrow, but you're going to go back to school, right? And what can everyone do to make you feel safer? 
possibly just be myself. I sure I'm not scared. You know, um, Dad, I know we got to go, but I know, I know your boy said something to you, right? Right when you picked him up. What did he say to you? He just said that he was scared and he's glad that we got there on time. And it was just a scary situation. His children were shaken up. Parents was even more shaken up. But like I said, Richneck Elementary School is not the blame here. They, their safety measures are implemented. They got these kids in a safe zone. I'm very glad that that's what happened. Good. And I just want the state to speak up and try to get more implements so this doesn't happen again. Well, Mark Jr., you're very brave. Thank you both for being with us this morning. Thank you. Mm. Wow. That's can't even. Excellent. And can you imagine? No, I can't. That's the, like, guns in America, six years old. Yeah. Come on. Yeah. All right. It has been a year to the day since the comedy world lost Bob Saget. Coming up, his widow joins us on her late husband's legacy. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Today marks one year since America lost its TV dad, Bob Saget. A comedian and actor died suddenly from head trauma in his Florida hotel room while on tour. His death was devastating to his friends, his fans, but most of all to his family. His widow, Kelly Rizzo, has been sharing her journey on Instagram in the years since Bob died, writing this. I cannot thank you all for almost a full year of all the love and support and kindness. I can only hope to show you how thankful I am and give it back a bit over time. So joining me now in an exclusive interview is actress and producer Bob Saget's widow, Kelly Rizzo. Kelly, so happy to have you on. How are you doing? Thank you, Don. Well, thanks for having me, first off. Um, I'm doing okay. You know, every day is a little different. Um, as most people know, this is a journey, and there's really no guidebook or handbook on how to handle it, but just every day I've been doing my best and, most importantly, trying to keep his legacy alive in any way that I can and just keep sharing the love he had for people as much as I can. So, you know, that's been part of my new purpose. It's interesting that you're doing this on social media because you're using it in a positive way and as an outlet. Bob um, was also very active um, on social media uh, as well. And he also used that, his mm-hmm. um, social media, to work with the Scleroderma Research Foundation, right, to, to, to bring um, light and voice to that. You have taken on his mission, and for several months, and several months ago, there was a benefit in his honor raising more than $1.3 million. What does that support from people and from Bob's peers mean to you? It's everything because that was his life's work. He dedicated his entire life to supporting the Scleroderma Research Foundation. And he had said, he goes, for the rest of my life, I will be fighting for this cause and doing everything I can to help find a cure because it's the disease that took his sister's life almost 30 years ago. And he was just so fiercely dedicated to it. So, I mean, I can't even come close to doing what he did for it because he was such a force and he was the face of it for the last 30 years almost. So I'm just using, you know, anything I can do to help further the cause 
And, you know, I helped out with the benefit um, this last uh, September, and I helped bring together some of his best friends and his, you know, comedians, musicians, to really help um, raise even more money for the cause. And the fact that all of his friends just continue to show up for him, it's, the gratitude is just, I, I can't even... I'm speechless with how grateful I am to all of them. Yeah. Well, the, the Bob Saget Memorial Fund will award its first grants this year. What do you think Bob would have to say about all this? Oh, gosh. I mean, I'm sure he would have some kind of dark humor joke about uh, <laughs> like a memorial fund in his name. But uh, I won't even try to go there. But he would be so touched that there's this massive now fund that you know, is in his honor and is in his name to be able to fund the research to end this horrible disease. And his whole thing was, he's like, we want to put this entire foundation out of business because then that means they found a cure. So he just, the fact that he continues to have a big impact on finding a cure for scleroderma would just mean so much to him. Yeah. Hey, before I let you go, I've got to ask you, Kelly, um, you know, if there's anything else you would like to say about Bob, how you're going to remember him going forward, because I personally, I, I, he was one of my favorites. And comedians helped me get through the sad times, the bad times, the trouble times. And the darker the humor you mentioned, dark, he'd have some dark humor joke, the better for me. So give us some words of wisdom. What do you think he'd think about this moment? Just... You know, I know what made a really big impact after last January and after everything happened was sharing his message of love and laughter and of never letting a moment go by without telling your loved ones how much they mean to you. Um, that was so big with him. He never left anything on the table. If you were in Bob's life, you knew how much he loved you. He never missed an opportunity to tell you. Um, I mean, that's what I'm so grateful for, even in our last conversation, our last moments, was, I love you so much. I love you so much. Like, I never doubted for one second his love for me, for his family, for his friends. And I think, you know, we think of him as this big comedian and, you know, America's dad and all these things, but he was really just a sweet, sweet, loving, thoughtful, kind person. And, you know, just remembering him for the incredible man that he was um, at heart is what I know would mean so much to me and his family for um, how to him be remembered by and just sharing that love. And then, of course, the laughter is, um, you know, remembering his jokes, but also I'm just so grateful that I always have that, you know, in my ear, uh, him whispering little jokes to me forever. So I'm very grateful for that. Yeah. And funny as hell. I mean, I think anybody go look at the roast of Bob Saget. <laughs> He's funny as hell. Thank you, Kelly. I appreciate it. And that, well. yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Thank Don. you. Thank All you right. so much. I loved that. I loved that. Thinking of her today, especially Prince Harry adding new details about his fractured relationship with the royal family. Anderson Cooper, who did that sit-down interview with him for 60 Minutes. He's here with us ahead. Also this morning, thousands of nurses at two of New York City's biggest hospitals are on strike. What is behind the move? We have a live report just ahead. We're really concerned, especially my oncology patients that get chemotherapy. Um, but this had to happen for them.
it is your money this morning. LinkedIn seeing a boost in users and revenue after a recent wave of layoffs in the tech and media industries. Those industries just so happen to make up a core part of LinkedIn's user base. In 2022, LinkedIn's mobile app was downloaded 58 million times around the world. That is up 10% from the year before. We're at the top of the hour. Let's reset. Good morning. It is being called Brazil's January 6th, the capital there under siege by protesters who stormed government buildings over false claims a recent presidential election was rigged. We're going to take you there live. In politics, President Biden has just made his first visit to the border since taking office. He did not see or meet with any migrants, though. We'll speak to the mayor of El Paso about the crisis happening on the ground there in his city and Biden's new crackdown on the immigration surge. In sports, DeMar Hamlin set to be released from the hospital as tributes pour in from across the NFL after the life-threatening hit on the field. We're going to take you exclusively to the field as his teammates speak on the team's thrilling and emotional return. She has been missing for nine days now, and the husband of the Massachusetts mother has been arrested. But she's still nowhere to be found. Details on the charge and the search straight ahead. And in a revealing new interview with CNN's Anderson Cooper, Prince Harry says that he long believed his mom had faked her death and reveals why he blames Camilla for the negative stories about him. Anderson is going to join us live in just moments. CNN This Morning starts right now. So what I'll begin this morning with that interview. Good morning, everyone. Prince Harry with new revelations about his fractured relationship with the Royals during an interview with our very own Anderson Cooper on 60 Minutes last night. He talks about the physical altercation he had with his brother, Prince William, over his relationship with Meghan. Anderson is standing by. He's going to join us in just a moment. But first, I want you to take a listen to this. He was shouting at me. I was shouting back at him. It wasn't nice. It wasn't pleasant at all. And he snapped. And he pushed me to the floor. He knocked you over? He knocked me over. Um, I landed on the dog bowl. You cut your back? Yeah, I cut my back. I didn't know about it at the time. But um, yeah, he, he apologized afterwards. It was a pretty nasty experience. Do you speak to William now? Do you text? Uh, currently, no. But I look, forward to, I look forward to us being able to find peace. How I long want... has it been since you spoke? Um, oh, well. Do you speak to your dad? We, aren't, we haven't spoken for quite a while. Um, no, not recently. Can you see a day when you would return as a full-time member of the royal family? No, I can't see that happening. That was an amazing revelation for me. He also opened up about his decades-long struggle with grief following the death of his mother, Princess Diana. The interview was Harry's first with a U.S. outlet in advance of the publication of his book, Spare, releases online in the U.S. here tonight. Joining us now, our colleague, and also um, who did that interview on 60 Minutes, um, of Prince Harry, is Anderson Cooper. Anderson, good morning to you. It's good to see you. Listen, there are so many revelations here. My first question to you is, what, is your, what's your, what stood out to you most about this interview, most revealing to you? You know, I mean, I've, I read the book, so it's 416 pages, and it's it's a very nuanced and detailed portrait of this man's life. And I think, you know, we all grew up watching him. All of us have seen Prince Harry and his brother from the time they were born, uh, and we feel like we know who they are. And yet, when you read the book, 
very quickly you realize we don't know that much about what's been going on in the in the inner life of Harry and and how he sees himself and actually his relationship with his brother, which he says in the book has been on a different course since the death of their mother, Princess Diana, back in 1997. And that death is really the central event in obviously in Harry's life. And he writes extensively about this. This is really a, a memoir in many ways about grief and loss and the trajectory, how it changes the trajectory of one's life. It really, uh, Anderson, came full circle. I mean, you, you started the piece out last night with, with uh, William and Harry walking behind their mother's casket, and you ended with them walking behind their grandmother's casket, but how changed a relationship they had. And obviously we know, because you put it out there publicly in your podcast and talked about it, you know, the grief that you've gone through with deaths in your own family. And I wonder what it was like as someone who lost a parent as a teenager, um, too, just a few, my dad died just a few weeks before Princess Diana, so I just remember her death so well. Mm. What it was like for you to hear him detail his grief in that way that we've never heard publicly before. Yeah, I mean, to me, in you know, when I read the book, I had agreed to do this interview, you know, before I had a chance to actually read the book, because there are all these security protocols to actually even get a copy of the book. Um, what really jumped out at me is, you know, this is a story of grief and, and loss, and it is a huge part of the book, and it infuses a lot of what the way I think Prince Harry sees what is happening now and his concerns about what is happening now. Um, and, and I think that idea of, you know, the walk that they took behind their mother's casket, which was such a formative, I mean, it, it is the indelible image from the funeral in, in you know, early September of 1997 um, and that walk behind their grandmother's casket. And in many ways, it was a similar walk in that they were together, but they were apart. Mm -hmm. They were part by grief back when that when Harry was 12 and William was 15. Harry wasn't cry he couldn't cry about it until his mother was actually buried. He couldn't even talk about it really with with anyone for for much of his life. And he had this sort of magical thinking in the years after she died, even up into his early 20s, that he 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 thought maybe she was still alive. Um, it's not that he thought she had faked her death. It's that. He thought it, it was sort of a magical thinking, which occurs to many people who are, are you know, have lost somebody, um, imagining that maybe they are still out there something, thinking you see them in places. And, and that's something that he believed in, and he says that he had discussions with his brother about as well. Yeah, I think we have that moment in the interview. It really stood out. You didn't believe she was dead? For a long, for a long time. I just refused to accept that she was, she was gone. Um, part of, you know, she would never do this to us, but also part of maybe this is all part of a plan. I mean, you, you really believe that maybe she had just decided to disappear for a time? For a time and then that she would call us and we would go and join her. Yeah. How long did you believe that? Years, many, many years. And William and I talked about it as well. He had, um, he had similar thoughts. You write in the book, you say, I'd often say it to myself first thing in the morning, maybe this is the day. Maybe this is the day that she's going to mm -hmm. reappear. Yeah, hope. I had huge amounts of hope. And Anderson, one thing he told you was that he struggled to even talk about it, though, really, to other people about her death. Did you get a sense of why he's talking now and why he gave such an in-depth interview to you? Well, I mean, look, uh, there's a lot of different ways to, to look at that, and a lot of it depends on what you think about Prince Harry, probably, and, and his wife, uh, Meghan, um, look, he he will say 
I've been silent for my entire life. I've had endless stories written about me and people projecting things onto me and saying things about me. And this is an opportunity for me to actually talk about who I am and how I see things and the central role that the, my mother's death has played in, in his life. Um, obviously, critics of his will look and say, well, look, you know, he he and his wife have left the royal family. The, they've been accused of cashing in on their royal titles. Uh, they are, you know, not just telling their story. They're being, you know, they're making accusations against uh, members of the royal family, which is part of their story as well, they would say. Um, so obviously, people are going to see different, re you know, ways. Obviously, this is part of a multi-book deal that uh, Harry had signed with with Penguin Random House. There was the Netflix series, obviously, in which detailed more of their of the fracture with the royal family and uh, their lives as a couple. Um, I think the book, though, the thing, you know, the, the the focus for most people on the book, obviously, are the revelations of the, the drama that's been going on behind the scenes and the accusations back and forth. When you read the book, though, it is very much a memoir of this person's life and the full arc of their life. Mm -hmm. Um, and really a story of grief and, and, and you know, early childhood trauma. Yeah. Um, Anderson, before you go, just, um, I, I, Poppy talked about you losing your family members, and I lost my um, dad, my sister, year, right? my grandma, right? Um, and um, it's just, it's interesting because you never get those people back, but he still has his brother in his life. And that was a sad part to me. And then when I said that was the most revealing, he said, I don't think I'll ever be a member of the royal family again, which translated to me as I don't think that I can heal this rift. I hope that they can. But can you talk about that? Because yeah, his brother's I, I, still I, here. Yeah. He actually says, you know, he, uh, he would make a distinction. I think what, you know, the question for him was uh, really a, a public a senior role in the royal family, you know, uh, living in England, working full time for the royal family uh, as he was, that he doesn't see happening. He certainly holds out the possibility of a partial role continued in the royal family. He says that the offer that was made to um, this is not part of this was not in this came out in the interview. We didn't include in the piece, but just for time. Um, but it, he says that a partial role is still on the table. The original offer, which was living overseas for a certain amount of months a year uh, and then, uh, you know, fulfilling duties for the royal family uh, for part time of the year, that that is still on, on the table. He, there, there would still need to be a number of conversations and discussions and, and uh, frank, frank discussions that don't leak out before that would happen. So he holds out. He certainly says he wants a relationship with he loves his brother. He loves his father. He says he wants a relationship with all of them. Um, obviously, that's maybe even more difficult to imagine right now, given the revelations he has he has brought forth. But he he says he's not doing it in a in a hurtful manner. And he very much would like to have a dialogue. Anderson, thank you. Good to see you. We appreciate you joining us this morning, and we'll be watching tonight. So make sure you tune in tonight for Anderson's full interview. Uh, the Harry interview begins at 8 Eastern right here on CNN. I want to turn to Brazil now this morning, where a violent attack on the seat of government is being called their own January 6th. <laughs> Thank you.
These rioters that you see there are supporters of the former president, Bolsonaro, who lost his election. He, they stormed and vandalized Brazil's Congress, Supreme Court and presidential palace, insisting that he was a victim of a rigged election. At least 400 people are under arrest this morning. These are the images that we are seeing playing out right now in the capital. Troops in the streets, as you can see there, trying to quell these protests. CNN's Brazil reporter Pedro Nogueira is on the ground. Tell us what you're seeing there this morning in the aftermath of this. Hundreds of people are now under arrest after the invasion of the three main government buildings here in Brasilia, Brazil. Supporters of former President Jair Bolsonaro broke into the presidential palace, the congressional building, and also the Supreme Court building. Rioters left behind a trail of destruction. Huge glass windows were broken everywhere. Works of art were damaged or also stolen. And they even looted weapons at the presidential palace. At the Supreme Court, the minister's chairs were ripped off the building. Supreme Court ordered the governor of Brasilia to be temporarily removed. Justices understand that there was omission in this situation. Local authorities knew beforehand that the demonstration was underway and did nothing to stop them. Hundreds of buses with rioters drove to Brasilia during the weekend and police did nothing to stop them. President Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva will spend the day this Monday meeting with Supreme Court justices and state governors to solve the situation. Pedro Nogueira, Brasilia, CNN Brazil. Shows the global impact that things that happen here in the U.S. have on other places. Pedro, thank you for that report. Also this morning, more than 7,000 nurses and at two of the city's largest hospitals are on strike. This comes after talks over pay and staffing with Mount Sinai Hospital in Manhattan and Montefiore in, Brook, in the Bronx, rather, failed overnight. The hospitals have been really diver- having to take extreme measures like diverting ambulances to other hospitals, putting elective surgeries on hold, even transferring infants out of the neonatal intensive care unit. Our Vanessa Yurkiewicz joins us live outside of Mount Sinai. That's what really got me, Vanessa, when I heard that babies were being moved out of the NICU because there wouldn't be enough nurses to care for them. What's the crux of the impasse here? Yeah, and Poppy, the number of nurses out here in front of Mount Sinai have been growing by the hour. We expect that there are hundreds out here right now, and they span two city blocks all the way from 101st Street all the way around the corner down the street coming up to 99th Street. And the real issue here with these two hospitals, Mount Sinai and Montefiore, not reaching a deal stems around safe staffing. This is the ratio of nurses to patients in order to have safe care for these patients. I want to bring in one transplant nurse here. Where is he? Come over here, sir. This is Warren Urquhart. He's a transplant nurse here at Mount Sinai. Warren, tell me, why are you out here this morning? Oh, we're out here because we're fighting for safer staffing ratios for our patients. We want to make sure we get an equal wage, a fair wage, so where everyone can actually feel like we're working for an institute that actually cares about us. And a transplant nurse is such a critical job here. What is your concern about your patients right now who are in the hospital without you today? Well, we've been fighting for working under safer conditions. There's laws that are in place that aren't even being enforced anymore. So the thing is, now they're working under conditions that we work under. And now we hope that these patients are going to be under safe conditions because we do the best we can every day. And we want to make sure that they're getting the best that they get every day. And not just the days when we're not here. Thank you, sir. If something's wrong inside the hospital, that's why we're outside the hospital fighting for them. Thank you, Warren. 
Now, the governor has suggested binding arbitration, which would bring in a neutral arbitrator to try to work out a deal between the hospitals and the unions, Poppy. But the hospitals agreed to it. The unions did not. So they are here out on strike until this deal gets done. Poppy. Wow. Vanessa, thank you for that reporting live in New York. Caitlin. Also this morning, the football world is celebrating the remarkable recovery of the Bills' safety, Damar Hamlin, after he collapsed from sudden cardiac arrest on the field. Before their game against the Patriots, the Bills honored the training staff that saved his life. And across the league, players, coaches, executives are all showing their support, many of them wearing Hamlin's number three on a T-shirt with the words, Love for Damar. We are now learning that he could be released from the hospital in just a matter of days. His Buffalo Bills are paying the ultimate tribute to their teammate and brother just seconds into the game against New England last night in a way that Hollywood even could not script. Going to be short, fielded at the four by Hines, coming straight up the middle to the 20, cuts it back at the 25, he's got an alley down the right sideline to the 40, 50, down to the 40, 35, 30, 20, 15, 10, 5, touchdown, Naheem Hines! Hamlin was watching that touchdown. He tweeted as he was watching the game from his hospital bed, responded to that play with a simple OMFG. We've received love and support from not only the fans, but every team in the NFL. And it was all about three. I mean, it was all about Jamar. We were really appreciative of that. And I don't want that to outshine his moment because he was here for us. And I felt like he was running with me on that field. The Bills quarterback, Josh Allen, also got emotional thinking about Hamlin in that special moment for number three. I can't remember a play that touched me like that, I don't think, in my life. So it's, it's probably number one. And I was going around my team saying, God's real. Like, you can't, you can't draw that one up, write that one up any better. Um, and I, I was just told by Kevin Curran, it's been three years and three months. <sighs> Since the last kickoff return, so it's pretty cool. Buffalo won the game 35-23. to Afterwards, CNN's Coy Wire caught up with the Bills offensive lineman Deion Dawkins about the tough game. It was extremely hard. I don't want to like sugarcoat it. Like, it was extremely hard, and it still is because our brother is still not physically here, mm -hmm. but the fact that he's in high spirits makes him here. But until he physically touches his toes down, <laughs> then it'll be a full, ah, you know, but it's just, it's a, it's, it's, it's a crazy balance. Man. Let's bring in CNN's senior data reporter, Harry Enton, who's been looking at this Bills victory and their path ahead now that they are in the playoffs. Obviously, everyone's rooting for them in the, in the sense of Jamar Hamlin, but what do the numbers actually look like? All right, so this morning's number is two. It is two because Naheem Hines had not just that opening kickoff return for a touchdown, but he had one later on in the game. It's the first time since 2010 that the same player had two kickoff returns for a touchdown in the same game. I can't tell you how excited I was. <laughs> go, go, go. Oh, my goodness gracious. That was a lot of fun after a really tough week. But let's sort of talk about that road ahead. Okay, so to win the Super Bowl, what do the Bills need to do? They're going to need to win four games. They're going to have to win the AFC wild card game 
at home next week against Miami. Then they'll have to win the AFC Divisional game at home in two weeks. They'll have to win the AFC Championship in three weeks. That will either, either be in Buffalo or if they play Kansas City, it'll be at a neutral site. It was kind of the thing that they reached, that agreement they reached after the Bills didn't play last Monday. And then, of course, they'll have to win the Super Bowl in Arizona on February the 12th. Yeah. So this AFC game that's next weekend. Yeah. So let's talk about that. This is the easy part of it. Okay. The chance of winning the AFC wild card game next week. Buffalo with an 81% chance. Miami with just a 19% chance. Keep in mind, the Bills have just lost one playoff game at home in their current stadium. So it looks pretty good next week. Of course, Caitlin. What comes after that? What happens after that? Okay. Top team's chance of winning the Super Bowl. You can see here the Bills. At a 20% chance, that is second to the Kansas City Chiefs. But we really have just sort of this group of top five teams. It's going to be a tough road to go. But the fact is the Bills are in this. They have a legitimate shot. And we'll see what happens. Because right now, yesterday showed us, I believe fate is on our side. And I feel like with you rooting for them, it's going to be higher than 20% for the Bills. You know what? If I have any juju, I will put it all towards them winning. It would truly be a dream fulfilled after all these years of losing. All right, we'll talk about what your what your traditions are before the game next. Harry Sounds Anton, good. <laughs> thank you. You know so why much. I'm laughing? Juju. Because no. Don is giving me weird side eyes about Juju. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, look, the fact of the matter is, Don, I use whatever words that are needed to describe what's going on and anything to get my bills over the top. If the bills make the Super Bowl, Don, you and I can go together. How so about you that? you can use whatever words you want to use. Can I use whatever words I want to use? No. Right uh, Don, let's keep it PG, please. Uh, as it refers to you, Cray Cray. <laughs> A little bit sometimes. <laughs> in the best way. Just in, in the love, best Harry. way. Thank whatever you. it takes. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Harry. Thanks. All right, turning the page here, President Biden visited the southern border this weekend for the first time in his presidency. He did not speak with, though, or meet with any migrants. We'll talk to the mayor of El Paso next. Plus, the search is intensifying for a missing mother of three in Massachusetts, and now her husband is under arrest. More CNN this morning to come after the break. Well, today marks eight days since Anna Walsh, a Massachusetts mother of three, was last seen. She was reported missing last week after she never arrived for work in Washington, D.C. Now police in Massachusetts arresting her husband for misleading investigators. So let's find out what's going on now. CNN's Bryn Gengrass joins us now. Good morning to you. Hey. So what's going on with the husband? What are police saying? Yeah, so he's set to be arraigned this morning on that misleading investigation charge. And it's very unclear what sort of happened over the weekend. Because on Friday, when police were giving a news conference about this being a missing persons investigation, they said the husband was being very cooperative with this investigation. But now we know he has been arrested on this misleading uh, investigation. So we'll see what comes out in court. It's very possible we might get more information, of course, as this court day happens. Why have police suspended their search? Yeah, so that's also very unclear. I mean, there's just no sign of this mother. Yeah. They have no sign of this mother. So she went missing. Let's kind of go through the timeline. She went missing. She was supposed to board a flight on New Year's Day. She was last seen by a family member, according to police, on January 1st, leaving at 4.05 in the morning from her home in Massachusetts, headed for a flight to Washington, D.C. Police say she's never got into, they have no, you know, no information that she got into a ride share or, and definitely did not get onto a plane. And she sort of just disappeared. As far as investigative, you know, leads, they don't really have any right now. They said she has no digital footprint. So meaning she didn't spend any money on credit cards. She hasn't had any sort of, uh, you know, communications with anyone. She 
has her phone actually turned off, according to this investigation. So they searched here. What you're looking is a, a wooded area around her home in Massachusetts. And police said that they suspended that search and they're not going to continue until they get new information that makes them believe they need to go continuing that search. So still Terrible. so many questions this morning. This kids, is a mother, right? 39 yeah. years old, has three kids, ages mm. two to six years old. We'll find out more about this, you know, yes. court date this morning for the husband. Thinking about those kids this morning. Absolutely. Thank you, Brent, very much. President Biden is going to be meeting with the Mexican president in Mexico City shortly. Up next, we're going to talk to the mayor of El Paso, who Biden met with this weekend in his first trip since taking office to the border. Welcome back to CNN This Morning. Coming up in the next 30 minutes, California, already battled by storms, is bracing for another round of dangerous and potentially deadly weather with heavy rains, severe flooding and gale force winds. Also, the House, with its newly minted speaker, gets down to business today. Maybe we'll see what it looks like. Republicans are trying to pass the rules package for the new Congress, which is going to be the first big test for Speaker Kevin McCarthy. And a nightmare ordeal in Texas where a man has been charged with aggravated kidnapping for allegedly holding a woman that he met on the dating app Bumble captive for days, repeatedly assaulting her after she denied his sexual advances. Well, this morning, President Biden is in Mexico to meet with the Mexican president. One of the multiple topics on the agenda will, of course, be border security. Before arriving in Mexico, Biden toured El Paso, Texas. It was his first tour of the border as president. Local officials and area lawmakers accompanied him as he spoke with officers and migrant aid providers. So joining us now... Uh, one of those local officials is the El Paso Mayor Oscar Lisa. Um, we're so happy to have you this morning. Thank you for joining. Um, we spoke with the president. Um, it was you had a talk with him. I'm wondering what he said and how he received what you had to say. Well, you know, we we're very thankful that he came down here to really talk to the people that really we'd been um, dealing with it on a day in and day out. And, uh, you know, it, uh, it really makes a difference. I was telling people that he's very aware of what's going on in the border. He's very aware of what's going on in El Paso. But coming down and seeing it with his own eyes really made a big difference. And uh, what, I, what I did, though, I made a book. And this book had 62 pictures of what I've seen through my eyes. Every morning I'd go down. And this morning I went down there and looked at the, you know, Sacramento uh, Church area. And, and I... Um, I actually would go down at four in the morning and take pictures. So I was able to share these pictures with him because it's something he wouldn't be able to see. So for the last 90 days, I've actually uh, shared the pictures that I was able to really compile. And, and he looked at them and where there was at the airport, where there was uh, at the river. So it was really very, and I was able to have a little breakout room with him and kind of go over those pictures with him, which were very impactful. So he could see what our city and what challenges we'd been going through. Mayor, one question has been about what the president didn't see, because from our reports on the ground, our reporters were with him. He didn't actually come face to face with any of the migrants there. And we know that there are hundreds of migrants, of course. We've seen them sleeping on the streets of El Paso. So did he get a sufficient view of the humanitarian crisis aspect of this? Well, he didn't, you know, he talked to uh, Bishop Sides, who has really been dealing a lot with uh, the, the migrants. He, he talked to the Border Patrol. He talked to Customs and the people that really are on the street that are hands on. He talked to uh, the county judge, uh, 
Congressman uh, Cuellar came down, Congressman Gonzalez, uh, Congresswoman Escobar. So he really, he talked to everybody that really has been dealing with this and how we could, you know, get the people out the street. And that was my main concern. How do we work together to get the people off the street, make sure that uh, they're not on the street, they're not sleeping on the street, and they're not susceptible to, um, you know, the climate out here. But the White House, uh, our reporting from Rosa Flores is that the White House said he went to a migrant center, but there weren't any migrants there at the time. But I want to show our viewers and also play for you um, our Rosa Flores on the ground there while the president was visiting El Paso talking to migrants and then get your thoughts out of that. Here it is. I'm in the second ward in downtown El Paso. This is a church, and you can see that there are hundreds of migrants who are still living on the streets. There's lines for everything. There's lines for food. Um, migrants are getting in line for water. They get in line for toys for their kids. Uh, this is the reality on the ground right now. Are you concerned that the President Biden didn't see that reality on the ground for himself? that reality and, and that was, I mean, that's what the book was the book you, you couldn't see what i've seen in, in the last 60 to 90 days and that book really compiled uh right there where rosa was i, I had pictures of that uh and then a little bit up further up the street and down in, in the river uh, on the river crossing and at the airport people sleeping at the airport because that was important that he really had a, a, a view of everything that we've been seeing so um no he he actually was able to see what was going on, what's been going on in El Paso. And I have gone down. I was there this morning again, and I'm usually there, down there 10, 11 o'clock at night. So he was a, I was able to have a one-on-one -on -one with him and talk to him about what had been going on in El Paso and our needs. And uh, he was able to talk to the Border Patrol and ask them what their needs were. And I, I was very impressed because when he asked them what their needs were, he knew what their needs were. And and he... he uh, he knows what the needs are within our community, but it's important that uh, we get the people off the street and we continue to work together as one. Would you qualify it as a crisis right now in your city? Absolutely. It's still a crisis and it will continue to be a crisis till we fix the broken immigration system. And the system is broken. It didn't break yesterday. It's not going to fix today. It's yeah. really a process that needs to continue. But right now, all we have is a Band-Aid, and we've been getting funding from the federal government. They've been really good at giving us funding, but that can't continue because we need to fix the broken immigration system. But we still, as a city, need to continue to follow the laws of our country. Mayor Oscar uh, Lesser of El Paso, Texas, thank you for your time. Thank you. A thank dangerous you. situation. Thank you. You as well, Mayor. A dangerous situation unfolding out west, the threat of mudslides, sinkholes, forcing evacuations in California. We're going to take you there live. Use your common sense. You heard that uh, from a number of the speakers here over the course of the last uh, few moments. And that is uh, don't test fate. You are those were live looks at Los Angeles and San Francisco as California's governor Gavin Newsom warns not to test fate ahead of an intense weather 
situation this week, all week. President Biden approving an emergency declaration as California reels from what officials call a relentless parade of cyclones. Much of the state is being battered by torrential rain, damaging wind, widespread flooding. More than 400,000 people are without power. Some communities already being ordered to evacuate. Now more storms are coming with hardly any time for cleanup. Camilla Bernal joins us live in San Francisco. This morning, my good, very good friend lives in San Francisco. She's very, very pregnant, like due in a week. And she was messaging me about how concerning this is. What's going on right now? Hey, Poppy, yeah, it's constant rain. And the problem is that a lot of people in the Bay Area and in general in California are not used to this type of rain. It is a storm after another storm with very little time in between. And so officials here saying you need to be prepared for power outages and you need to be prepared for very dangerous driving conditions. Look, the ground is already saturated. So when you add more rain, what happens is sinkholes and mudslides, two things that already happened with the last storm. Officials here in San Francisco are also worried about a communications outage. Here is the director of the emergency management uh, program here in San Francisco and how she explained it. Many of the uh, infrastructure for even communications, that's our cell and internet, is underground. And so as we get more inundation from the rain, we're seeing more failure around those what we call lifeline systems. And we're expecting three to five inches of rain over the next five days. So again, already the ground is saturated. Already there are people who are having to deal with flooding in their homes. I've seen communities near the ocean having to put sandbags all along uh, their garages and their doors just to keep that water away. And of course, anyone like your friend who is pregnant is going to have to think about how a drive to the hospital is going to be or going anywhere really in the Bay Area and in general in California is going to be dangerous over the next couple of days. It's really scary. We're, uh, we're grateful you're there covering it. Thank you. Camilla Bernal for us live in San Francisco this morning. Well, it took Kevin McCarthy 15 tries, but he did win the speakership. Now it's time to govern. That might be even harder than trying to become speaker. We'll talk to a member of his caucus next. The gentleman from the great state of California and the next speaker of the 118th Congress Kevin McCarthy. After a bruising fight to get that gavel he's holding there, Kevin McCarthy is going to face his first test as House Speaker today when Republicans try to pass the rules package for the 118th Congress. This matters because it governs how they are going to operate this session. It could reveal more about those backroom deals that McCarthy made with the hardliners, with his critics, in order to get their vote. At least one Republican said they do plan to vote against it in protest of potential cuts in defense spending. Big questions about that. So joining us now this morning is Republican Congresswoman Nicole Maliotakis of New York. She supported Kevin McCarthy for speaker. She was there late on the floor on Friday night, Congresswoman, you know, I think if anything we learned from last week, it was that you can't take anything for granted. So my first question for you is, will you vote for this rules package and do you expect that it will pass today? 
Well, first let me say that had it not been for a small group of Republicans uh, from New York, including myself, we would still be here today without a speaker. We refused to adjourn. Uh, we stood up to leadership and said, we're just not having this anymore. We need to get this figured out uh, when it was down to just those six members who had been holding out. I'm glad that we kept the roles open. It gave them the time to figure it out. Uh, and here we are with Speaker Kevin McCarthy, who I did support from the beginning. Uh, with regards to the rules package, uh, look, I'm, I'm interested in hearing uh, further debate, but I am inclined to support them. I think a lot of the changes are good, good government reforms that we had long been advocating for. I think members do not want the House to be run the way Nancy Pelosi ran it, where we got bills at the last minute, not having ample time to read them. This would provide us with 72 hours to read legislation. It would provide us with congressional budget office scores on how in, it would impact the cost of these bills would impact inflation. It would require that these bills not be so massive uh, with all sorts of stuff that is unrelated to the issue at hand stuffed into them, but instead they're single subject bills. Uh, and it would also require other things like making sure that there's a supermajority to increase taxes. Uh, and it does set us on a path to start uh, start paying down our debt and to balance our budget, which I think is so incredibly important for the future of this country. $31 trillion is just completely unsustainable. This can't continue. So look, if we pay for something new, we have to cut it from somewhere and we need to work toward balancing this budget over the next decade. Well, Congressman, you said you're inclined to support them. You did not say you would outright support them. Do you think that you have a clear view of what concessions Kevin McCarthy agreed to to get the votes of those 20 hardliners? Well, we have the rules before us. We have had the opportunity, because we require now three days to be able to read them, uh, and we have looked them over. And again, they're all good government uh, reforms. The only thing that actually changed, by the way, these rules were negotiated by the entire conference. Kevin McCarthy was very open and honest, transparent, allowing all members to participate in the process on how to improve the way the House operates. And that should be made clear here. The major vast majority, all but maybe one, had been negotiated by the entire conference, and approved, I should say, by the entire conference prior to January 3rd, which is why this stalemate that happened last week was unnecessary, because it didn't really add anything much more, unless there were, as you say, uh, other, other deals made on the side that we're unaware of. But I, I trust Kevin McCarthy. I think that he was doing what was in the best interest of the entire conference. And the bottom line is we need to move forward. There's just too many issues facing our nation right now that we want to get forward and address. Uh, look, we plan on passing legislation this week uh, to deal with uh, the border security, uh, to deal with, uh, you know, IRS, to deal with other things that are important. Uh, prosecutors Must yeah. Prosecute Act, which is a bill I'm sponsoring, and other things. So we just want to move forward and start governing. But to get to all of those, you got to pass this rules package first. And, you know, part of this will include the deals that he made last week. We've seen Chip Roy and others who were initially against Kevin McCarthy talk about those changes. You know, one big thing that people are looking at is, is there going to be a showdown over the debt ceiling and what that looks like? Do you have concerns about cuts to defense spending? Uh, sure, and that's not part of the rules. Uh, that could be an area that they're discussing, which would be interesting, right? Because this uh, group of uh, members of the Freedom Caucus would then be siding with AOC and members of the squad and President Biden, who have all called for uh, cutting defense spending. So it's not necessarily saying it has to be defense spending. It's just saying that we want to start reducing spending uh, and, and moving us on a path to balance a budget in 10 years and start paying down our debt, which is the responsible thing uh, to, to be doing. Do you think that Kevin McCarthy can make it through this Congress without that motion to vacate being used against him? 
Um, I, I do. I, I do get concerned about one or two members who are more uh, interested in being showmen than actual legislators uh, using it to weaponize against him in the conference. That is a concern. Uh, but if Kevin's okay with it, then you know we should be moving forward with that. I would say one thing. This will be telling, and it will be telling to see whether this exercise uh, will bring the Republican conference together more. Will it unite us? Or will it bring uh, uh, bipartisanship uh, to the House of Representatives? Because there are members, uh, and I would say myself included, that aren't going to tolerate uh, a small handful preventing us from doing the people's business. And so we have to be, do what's responsible. We need to do what's in the best interest of the nation. And I'm here to work and not to, you know, play games. Yeah, there are big questions about what legislating will get done. I want to ask you before you leave about Brazil and what we're seeing happen there with these anti-democracy riots. And I wonder if you will, are willing to condemn them and what you're seeing happening in Brazil this morning. You know, absolutely. Um, I, do, I do condemn it. Look, we can't, uh, we can't support political uh, violence. Uh, I understand that these individuals are probably very concerned about you know, Brazil going down the path of Cuba and Venezuela and Nicaragua and Bolivia, uh, moving more towards a, a communist dictatorship. Uh, as a daughter of a Cuban refugee, uh, I, I uh, share those concerns. But political violence is never the answer. And so uh, it must be condemned. And I hope uh, everyone is united on that front. And should Republican leaders also condemn it? Absolutely. Look, there's no there's no excuse for this type of political violence. All right. Congresswoman Nicole Maliotakis, you've got a very busy day ahead of you. We'll be seeing how those votes happen later tonight. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Great interview. Very clear in those. I mean, those last two answers are critically important as we go into this. Those week. are really important. But yeah. also what she said about uh, when it comes to the rules, saying that Defense she spending. is inclined to support yeah. them. But there are big questions still about the full picture of what it looks like of what Kevin McCarthy uh, offered to those hardliners last week. Well, there's also some questions about um, from the Democrats as well, because she was one of 147 who voted to not to certify the election to overturn the election results in 2020. And she has said she's she's not an election denier, but she did you know, vote with um, Republicans in the House not to certify Joe Biden's election. So it's going to be interesting to see what happens with this Congress and how she what she does with the with the president. Yeah. And they've got a very slim majority. So we'll see seeing that. We're glad you're back. Yeah. Good to be back. Welcome back. Thank you. CNN Newsroom starts right after this break. That is it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at cnn.com slash audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash call me country. Max subscription required.